Scott. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. I actually think this morning we'll finish verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3. If I can't, then we'll have to continue next week. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Father, when we look at this word that you've given us, and Father, when the Holy Spirit begins to open our minds and hearts and pour into us revelation, experience. Father, there's nothing greater in this life than knowing you, experiencing you, walking with you, obeying you, being adjusted by you, being protected and provided for by you. Everything by your spirit in us. Father, thank you for this study of your word. And Father, we pray that as we teach this word, as we listen to sermons on Sunday morning, that your Holy Spirit is applying this word in a living and dynamic and changing and transforming way in the heart and mind of everyone who physically is here. Father, for we know your purpose is to transform, conform us to the image of your Son. So, Father, this morning, once again, we begin by acknowledging to you and asking for your anointing. Father, the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon me as I speak, whatever words I say, that you will transform those words into anointing power in those who hear. Father, for we desire so much to be your anointed people who show forth the praise of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, we talked about Jesus being anointed as God's high priest. And again, as we share the word, always want to make sure that as we read the word of God, no matter where we are in the word of God, we are reading it within the context of Genesis 1 and 2. Because as I've said so many times, what we see in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the coming forth in reality, the dawning, the great light. Remember, a light has shone that light that led the Magi, that light that enlightens all of our minds and hearts, a light has shone into the world. And finally, God's man, his last Adam, remember 1 Corinthians 15, 45, his last Adam, this one who is the image of the invisible God in Hebrews 1, 3, he is now among us, to do what Adam failed to do by keeping the roles that God gave Adam through his obedience so that God's people could be brought back to that Eden relationship and even a greater and far closer relationship than even Adam and Eve had. So Jesus is anointed 
at the uh, Jordan to fulfill Adam's priestly role, remember in Genesis 2.15, to keep and work the garden, to protect the garden, the sanctuary of God, and to minister the worship of God in the sanctuary of God. In order that God's people, Jesus is anointed to do this, in order to make us fit to experience and to come into the presence of God. And so everything that Jesus is anointed for and everything that Jesus does and everything he says is for one purpose, is to make us fit to be the Genesis 1:26 people that God has created us to be in the beginning. So keep that in your mind as you read your Bible and always see it that way as a comprehensive, continuing work and flow of God. And so as we learn, these, there were two aspects to the priestly duty. Let me just read them to you. Leviticus 16, 15, and 16. Two aspects, and we're talking about particularly the Day of Atonement here in Leviticus 16. And he, that means the high priest, Jesus is anointed to do this. And he shall slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. That's in the Holy of Holies. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. And so the first aspect or the primary aspect of the anointed high priest in Israel was to take the goat, slaughter it, cut its throat, and take the blood into the most holy place as an atoning sacrifice for the sin of the people. The second aspect is in Leviticus sixteen twenty to 22, and it follows obviously after the first. When Aaron was finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forth the live goat. Remember, there were two goats. One was to be slaughtered. One was a live goat that awaited Aaron, uh, the atoning sacrifice that Aaron made. And he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry itself all in, on itself all their sins to a solitary place. We've talked about this, so I don't want to go back into the details. This was the anointing that the priest had, himself being anointed to make the sacrifice. But you see, the difference is, in Jesus is when Jesus was anointed, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit to fulfill both of these aspects. He was anointed to be the priest who made the sacrifice, and he also was to be himself the very sacrifice that he would offer unto God. And so that's what's happening at the Jordan. Jesus sees this. He knows this. He is embracing this, knowing that as he is anointed and as he goes into the waters of baptism, showing the anointing, uh, the washing of God and coming out again through his obedience and the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove and resting on him. God is anointing him for this great role of Adam to be fulfilled through Christ. So what does Hebrews 9, 11 and 12 tell us? But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is why Jesus comes to the Jordan. 
to fulfill this as the royal high priest. In this way, in this way, Jesus is offering himself on the, as the blameless groom for the atoning of his bride. Jesus comes from heaven as the blameless groom to offer himself as an, a sacrificial atonement for his bride. And you see that in Ephesians 5, 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's very interesting when you read the text in Genesis 3, knowing this, there was a blameless man in Genesis chapter 3 before verse 6. His wife had sinned. And isn't it interesting? And you wonder, and the probability is that what Adam should have done before he sinned, and rather than sinning, blameless Adam should have offered himself to God in the place of his wife for the payment of her sin. But rather than doing that, rather than taking upon himself the role of the husband as God had intended it to be, as pictured in Jesus, the husband of the bride, he capitulated and participated in her sin and himself became a sinner and brought down the whole race, representing the whole race. So when Aaron had offered the acceptable sacrifice for sin after he had finished, what he did is to come out of the tabernacle and at the gate of the tabernacle pronounce the Aaronic um, um, prayer. Remember the blessing in Numbers 6, 26, 24 to 26. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face presence, his face is present to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the great blessing that is conferred on the people of Israel as the high priest has made atonement for their sin that God has accepted. And now God sees his people as made fit and acceptable in order to come before him and come into his presence and experience the blessing of himself, of his own presence. That's what's contained in that prayer in Numbers 6, 24 to 26. And so what happens? When Jesus makes atonement for our sin, he comes forth out of the heavenly tabernacle. As Aaron came forth out of the earthly tabernacle, and Aaron stood at the gate of the tabernacle and gave this great blessing to the people of God. And Jesus coming forth on the day of resurrection out of the heavenly tabernacle, he comes before his people and he blesses them in the same way. Let me read this to you in John chapter 20, verse 19. This is the evening of the resurrection. On the evening of that day, the evening of the resurrection, Jesus came and stood among them as Aaron came and stood before the people. And he said to them, peace be with you. Remember, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift the countenance upon you and give you peace. And for the first time, God himself in Christ because of the acceptance of the sacrifice that Jesus makes at the cross, now is able to have his people come into his very presence and experience for the very first time the peace of God, the presence of God, and seeing in the face 
of Jesus Christ, the face of the Father. Uh, and we will wait until the day of resurrection itself for all of us to then see personally the very face of our Heavenly Father. But Jesus brings and makes real the blessing of Aaron from number 6, 24 to 26, makes it real for the disciples and also makes it real for us. So he fulfills that. That's the great blessing of God. The blessing of God Blessed, we talked yesterday to the ladies, was it yesterday or the day before, about the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What is the blessing? The blessing is God himself, God's presence, God's face, God's fellowship. That's the blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenlies. What is that blessing? God himself. God himself. And every blessing we have in our life is as a result of and a manifestation of the blessing that we now know God personally in Christ. Amen. That's the blessing of God. That's what it is. And so as a result of Jesus coming forth from the heavenly tabernacle and conferring on his people this blessing, God's people were made eternally fit to experience the blessing of his personal presence in Christ. The resurrection began that work of God of bringing his people into his presence. That is called Emmanuel. Remember, we've talked about it. And his name shall be called what? Remember in Isaiah 9? For unto us a child is born, etc. And his name shall be called Emmanuel. <clears throat> and the word, there mean, the word name doesn't mean, hey, Charles, that's your name. Fred, that's your name. His character, his purpose, his meaning, his desire shall be called Emmanuel. And what does that mean? God with us in the most intimate fellowship of love that we will ever be able to experience. We have been joined into the fellowship of God's Son, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, and we now, in part, but then on that day, completely and wholly be as close to God as any person, as he can make us, bringing us into the union of himself, the three persons, and causing us to experience to experience what it means and what it is like to be in the atmosphere and in the company and the experience of what that feels like and what that generates in us of this God of ours. That's where we're going on that day. You see, in his resurrection, Jesus reversed Genesis 3.24. Remember Genesis 3.24? And they were what? Expelled or put out of the garden, and God put the cherubim at the gate of the garden. And so now, Jesus in the resurrection has reversed that so that the gate of God's garden is once again open to God's people. No longer is there a cherubim or are there cherubim guarding the entrance to God's presence. Jesus has paid the price so that the entrance of God's presence may be open to us. So what does John ten seven say? I am the door. The door to what? 
I'm the gate into the garden to come back into the presence of God. I am the gate into God's eternal temple. I am the gate, the doorway, the way into God's presence. Through me, you will come and experience the very presence and face of God. And so in his resurrection, Jesus reverses Genesis 3.24 so that God's people are able to re-enter God's heavenly garden. Listen to these words that Jesus gave to the disciples on the night that he was to be crucified, keeping that understanding in mind that he is going to the cross in order to open the gate of the garden once again to us. And he says this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And where is that place? That place is the Father's presence. That place is the very presence, face-to-face fellowship and communion with God. It's not so much a location, although it is a location because there will be a new heaven and earth, but it is a relational place mostly. It's a relational place which is lived in a location place. And so let's not think about this as I'm going to have a house and there's going to be a new earth and new heaven and we're going to be. That's right. But the issue is, this is a relational place. This is a relational place that no one on earth can have except that God give it to us through the atoning sacrifice of his son that we receive by faith. What would I just quote in a little different way? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So it's a relational place. So that where I am, where I am, You may be also. You see, this is the empowerment and the motivation that should undergird each one of us to obedience and faithfulness and worship and anticipation and joy and loving fellowship among the brethren. This is what should motivate us and empower us moving forward to the day when we will all together experience being in this relational place with God in Christ. So now Jesus is ready now to confer this blessing, this blessing as expressed in Numbers 6, 24 to 26, this great high priestly blessing. He is now having been risen from the dead. He's now ready to confer this blessing of God's presence upon his people. How? By outpouring or pouring out as you pour water out of a jar, by pouring out the Holy Spirit upon the people, anointing them as God's people. Isn't this what John said in verse 11? talking about Jesus, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So Jesus is anointed to be the priest who offers himself as the sacrifice. And in doing so, Jesus is now anointed and authorized to be the one who sends forth the anointer in the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the anointed, is now un- sends the anointer of the Holy Spirit. And so we will be anointed by the Holy Spirit. And in that anointing and pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon us, we will then be brought 
personally and in a real spiritual and even physical way because we experience and feel God inside of us into the very presence of God waiting for the fullness in heaven waiting for the fullness but now we have the Arabon the down payment of the Holy Spirit the Arabon the down payment God has given us if you would a tithe a tithe of himself that represents the fullness to come And so on the night of the resurrection, you remember when Jesus came into the presence and he says, peace be with you. He's talking about his own peace. He's giving them his own peace. He's giving them the very peace that exists within God among the three persons of the Trinity. That very settlement, that very satisfaction, that very joy, that very relational activity that causes these that produces a unity of loving fellowship among these three persons this is a peace environment nothing out of order nothing to the contrary nothing disturbed there is a continual and eternal joyful loving fellowship through relational roles among the three persons of the Trinity. And Jesus gives us a taste of that when we receive him. And so in John chapter 2, I'm sorry, 20, we see Jesus saying this to his disciples, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. We've talked about this one time before. Remember in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, And what? God created man out of the dust of the earth. And in the next verse, what? He breathed into the nostrils of this person, the breath of life. And Adam became a living nephesh, a living soul. And here's Jesus breathing the Holy Spirit upon these men. Now they are beginning to experience and are receiving the good and the benefit and the reality and the power of what Aaron prayed for every time he came forth from the temple, conferring the blessing of God's presence upon the people. And remember, 40 days later, this same blessing is poured out upon the people in accordance with Joel 2.28. I will pour out like water. I will pour my spirit out upon all people. Just like you take a big bucket of water and pour it out, and water becomes a very clear symbol of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and even in the New. So this outpouring, this giving, this blessing, This is the goal of the incarnation. You see, Jesus, this is the reason Jesus came into the world. This is the the joy that was set before him. Remember that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2? For the joy that was set before him, what joy? The joy of knowing that in his death, his obedience... He would give joy to the Father by pouring out the Father's joy upon his people. You see, everything was toward one thing, the joy of God as conferred upon his people so that we can experience the peace and the joy of God. 
So why the incarnation? What was its goal? To bring God's people back to their Genesis relationship with God and even go beyond it into a much greater fellowship and union that Adam and Eve had at that particular moment. So the goal of the incarnation and the joy set before Jesus at the cross so that the apostle Peter could say this. Remember, once you were not a people, but now what? Now you are the people of God. How? By having received the Holy Spirit in our new birth. You see, the outpouring of the Spirit is, as I said, described in many locations in the Holy Spirit, uh, in the uh, Old Testament, as water. And you'll see water all over the place, the waters of the well. These mean more than just splashing and H2O. This is a spiritual significance, a spiritual teaching here. That these men who are traveling in these desert regions have to have that water for the physical life. And it's also as we travel through this veil of death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's where we are right now. We're in an environment that is dominated and controlled and under the influence of the God of this world. And the curse is death. We're moving through it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It is a shadow for the people of God. It's not a reality anymore because we have eternal life. But we're still moving through. And in this shadow of death in this desert region in this wilderness of this corrupt and fallen world we have to have places of water from time to time and regularly drinking of the water of God so you see wells all over the place the water coming forth and so it's a outpouring of the spirit is described with the washing of water listen to Ezekiel 36 and 25 and 27 in relation to this water that Jesus gives us that God gives us by the spirit and Ezekiel says this quoting from God because he's, he's prophesying what the Lord says I will sprinkle clean water on you now, does that mean that when you get baptized physically in the church that that's what that means it's a symbol it's an outward symbol of an internal reality. I'm going to clean, sprinkle water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. How? I will put my spirit in you. I will. I will. I will. You remember in, in Genesis 12 when the Lord appeared to Abraham. Seven I wills in the first seven verse. I will. I will. I will. I will. And so for us who may, for some who may struggle with God's uh, initiating of our salvation, there's nothing in here that says, if you, then I. He says, I will. I will. I will. I will change your heart. I will give you a new heart. Then, as a result of you receiving the spirit of the new heart, then you will be freed, unshackled by the old heart of stone and sin, and you will be released from that enslavement and be able to breathe in for the first time, like receiving oxygen for the first time, and you will be able to breathe in the Holy Spirit as you say yes to God as he bursts you into the kingdom. Amen? That's what's happening. 
You see, this probably was the scripture that Jesus had in mind in John chapter 3, verses 3 to 8, when he says, you must be born again. Telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. Something must happen to you. Someone must come upon you. A work must be done for you and on your behalf and then in you in order for you to be coming into the kingdom of God. And Jesus relates it in the verse 8 is what? The water and the spirit. Meaning the water is the cleansing and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Putting both of these together as one. And so what is a prerequisite? For being a member of the kingdom of God, you must be born again. How are we brought into the presence of God and receive the blessing of God? By Jesus pouring out of the water of life, by Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit upon us. And in doing so, people of God receive the Holy Spirit as their salvation. Let me say that one more time. Because often what we say is we're saved and we receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit as our salvation. Jesus purchased our salvation at the cross, and we receive it as our salvation as we receive the Spirit. So receiving the Spirit is receiving the salvation that Jesus Christ has purchased at the cross and has sent the Holy Spirit as he has been exalted in the heavenly places. So it's not... I have been saved and I have received the Spirit. That's two different things. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. We are saved. What did I just say? We received the Holy Spirit as our salvation. So please don't make it two. The word and is a coordinate conjunction joining two things. It ain't two things. It's one work. We receive the Holy Spirit as our salvation which we to which we say yes for by grace you have been saved through the word dia dia through means through the agency of faith that's what's happening here and jesus tells nicodemus this this is how you're you're born again of course interesting you remember nicodemus doesn't understand a thing of it huh what do you mean by that and and jesus tells him he says are you the ruler of the Jews? Are you the, sorry, teacher of Israel? Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't know these things? Here is a man who knew the Old Testament backward and forward and up and down and in and out. Completely knew these scriptures better than all of us put together. He knew them better than everybody in this room collectively knew them. But yet you remember he was unanointed at that time we believe and hope that he was saved later and Jesus says how can it be that you don't get this and Jesus then by analogy points to what we just read in Ezekiel 36 25 to 27 or 26 and 25 26 and 7 whatever and then when you read that passage in Ezekiel, what happens next? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pour out my spirit. I'm going to sprinkle you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to make you new. I'm going to pour out my spirit. So what analogy does the Lord give Ezekiel? In verse well, chapter 37, he says, and the Lord takes Ezekiel out to what? Out into the desert. And he sees a valley filled with 
dry bones. And they're not only dry, they are what? Very dry. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live again? Can they experience my life? Not just physical, my life again. Born again. Can they live again? And Ezekiel, smart man, says, you know, Lord. (laughs) I'm not touching it, Lord. You know the answer. See, Ezekiel didn't go beyond God. He didn't try to figure it out. You know. And what does the Lord say? Prophesy. What does that mean? Speak the word. Begin to move your lips and let the word of God come out of your mouth. And as you do, it will be my spirit pouring the water of life into these bones and causing them to come connect to one another and finally sinew and flesh and everything comes upon them. And then he says, prophesy to these bones that they may live. And this represents the whole house of Israel, all the people of God. God. And Ezekiel did that, and the breath of God came upon this great and mighty army, and they stood as a living man. Remember, they stood as an army of God's people alive. That's what Jesus was pointing to. This is the work that is going to happen as he, the living word, will pour out himself by the Spirit upon his people. So his people, once again, can be raised from deadness. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you who were dead, dry bones. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 10, that's who you were. And that's the work of God in us. Go back and read Ezekiel 37, 1 to 10, a whole lot of times, and get a vision of what has happened in our lives. You see, this is a scripture that Jesus probably had in mind. You see, the living water, this flowing, pouring out water, the living water, this is the living water that Jesus spoke about in John, remember, at the woman of the well. Listen to this, this pouring forth, this living water. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus has come to the well about noon, and the lady says, uh, Jesus says, hey, would you give me a drink? Now, she was totally mystified because this was a Jewish man asking not only a woman, but a pagan woman, a half-breed You'd have to go back and remember the Assyrians and all of that and dispersion and marrying off the Jewish people who were there with other people. So this was a woman who was a half-breed. She had some knowledge of God, and they did some things according to the Scriptures and other things not. But she is an outcast from the kingdom of God. And Jesus comes. He says, I must go through Samaria. I have to. Why? God's people are there and need to hear the word. The next time you wonder, what about the people in and you name the country, who never have heard the gospel. God's people there, Jesus is going there. If God's people are there, what? Jesus is going there. You got that? Did you understand that? So when people say, well, what about this? God sends the Spirit to where he has already planted his people. God sends the Spirit to where he's already placed his people. And he scattered them throughout the world. And he's still collecting his people. And not all of them have been collected. And I believe that the last one to be collected will be the end of the age. And Jesus will return. See, I'm not looking for anybody to come up in politics or antichrist or 
uh, Asia to do this or China. To, it's on the last one of God's people to come in. Then the age is over because there's no more work of the Holy Spirit upon the earth once he's brought the last child of God home. His work is finished. All that remains now is the judgment. All that remains now is the judgment. So Jesus is talking to the woman, and Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift, remember the gift. Who is the gift of God? The Holy Spirit of God, who it is that asked you for a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you what? Living water. And then he talked about this water that I will give. I will give the water. I will give the water. And this is the same analogy that we have in Ezekiel 47. This living water is the blessing of God that is described as a river flowing from God's throne in Ezekiel 47. This is the same living water that is described in Revelation 22, 1 through 5, where in the heavens, in the new heaven and new earth, and from the throne of God in the new Jerusalem, as heaven and earth have come together as one, then the great flowing river of God, the great work of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the ministry of the Spirit, and the presence of God fully forever. And verse 4, and they shall see his face. Verse 4, in my mind, is the quintessential goal of God. Remember, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. May the Lord lift the countenance upon you and give you peace. May he make his face to shine upon you. And where is that realized for us forever? Fully? Revelation 22, verse 4. And they, we, shall see his face. See, this is happening, and this is what we're looking for. One more part of this verse in verse 17, and I'll close. When Jesus is anointed, verse 7 says this, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. As I've said before, this is the first time in the Bible, in the history of man since the fall of Adam and Eve, that God's nature is now on display, maybe not fully, but at least in a way that the mystery of who God is and how he is can be understood by us. What do we have here? We have the voice of the Father speaking from heaven. We have the obedience of the Son in being anointed and baptized. And we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he descends upon the Son to anoint the Son as the anointer with the Holy Spirit as he completes his ministry of atoning for the sin of his people. We have the revelation of the triune God. Now, we're not going to go into any detail there because we have spoken about this many, many times. But here what we have is this. For the first time since the fall, God has now expressed himself clearly because it's been a mystery. Remember, it's been shrouded. It's been kind of covered over. It's been maybe glimpses of it, but we quite don't understand. Who is the us? Let us make 
man in our image after our life. Who is this? Who is this uh, man who stands before Joshua in Joshua chapter 5 with the great armor on, and he says, I am the captain of the host of the Lord. Who are these t- one person, but yet three people, and one person and three people in Genesis 18 who come to Abraham, and Abraham bows before them, and he calls him and them Lord. Who? What are all these mysterious presentations. Who is this man who stands in Daniel chapter 3 with these three boys in the midst of the burning fire? Who is this? This is God, you see, bit by piece, enshrouded mystery, declaring himself for who he really is, that God is not a single person being, but God is one in his being and three in his persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each person of the Trinity is fully God in himself, but not by himself. Each person of the Trinity is God in himself, but not by himself. And each person of the Trinity functions in a particular role so that the role of each one is the distinguishing factor in who the Father is, who the Son is, and who the Holy Spirit is. Because we can't know who the Father is, who the Son is, and who the Holy Spirit is by saying love, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipotent. We have described all three because they all share the very same nature. They are of the same nature, each one of them. So what distinguishes them in themselves and what is to distinguish them in us is how the roles, how each one functions in a role within relationship to the other. And so that is being manifested for the very first time at the Jordan. And so when we see these two little verses, and Jesus went down into the water and came up. And when he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, remaining on him. And the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is a monumental event that says, now God's man is upon the earth declaring the great triune God and will do everything necessary to make his people fit to come back, be brought back into his presence so that Genesis 1.26 and the creational purpose of God may be forever manifested and completed in the new creation once the old is put away because of its defilement and corruption and a new one, and we will live in the face of God forever. Amen. Next week, we won't have a study. We'll have the ladies who will be praying and anyone else who wants to be in here because of the men's uh, retreat. And we'll begin, continue to study in a week and a half, uh, two weeks now. Let's look forward to chapter four, the contest in the wilderness.